Prestige heads or listeners to American Prestige. Uh, welcome to your weekly American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my colleague and friend Derek Davis. And Derek, how's it going? Uh, I could use about 48 hours of sleep, but other than that, uh, I'm doing all right. How about you? Oh, good. Uh, I'm good. Best time to record a podcast is when, yeah. when you're feeling decrepit uh, as if fall is entering. Fall is entering. Uh, for some reason, we're about to make sure that it's dark super early. I don't know the history of that, but maybe we should do an international history of time. That'll be interesting. <laughs> Let's do wow. that. Wow. Yeah, that's deep. That's very deep. Yeah, that's deep. That's maybe maybe too deep for AP, but uh, I don't know. But of course, as always, there's a lot going on in the world, and we're here to update you with the goings-on of international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. So this week has been a, a big week for the United Nations, otherwise known as the U.N. So Derek, why don't you give us a little uh, breakdown of what's going on? Yeah, well, the U.N. is having its General Assembly session, um, trying to accommodate for life under COVID, um, which has been an interesting experience, I think. Um, the, the, the speeches have gone off. I mean, the, the event itself has gone off mostly, um, unhindered. There've been some interesting developments like Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, giving his address in person, even though he's not vaccinated against COVID and friend uh, of the pod, the, Jair yeah, Bolsonaro. Friend of the pod. We're a pro Bolsonaro pod. Absolutely. Um, the, the rule was that if you, if you're going to address the, General Assembly in person, you have to be vaccinated. Uh, but the UN, as it is wont to do, uh, hung that rule on basically an honor system, uh, and then wasn't wasn't even really willing to enforce that because Bolsonaro was quite open about the fact that he hasn't been vaccinated. Uh, he's not like trying to to lie. He wasn't like trying to lie his way into the chamber. Uh, but they even for somebody who's who's been very open about it, they still allowed him to address the chamber. His health ministers subsequently contracted COVID uh, while they were staying in New Oy. York. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, this could be his like. By some counts, this, we could be into like fourth, fifth infection if Bolsonaro gets it again. Uh, it's really kind of astonishing how many times he's uh, either uh, had it. I mean, he's definitely had it. Uh, there are questions about uh, how many times he's had it, in fact. Uh, but it's uh, it's a fascinating little uh, tale of one man and a virus that can't seem to quit each other. <laughs> what a psychodrama. And he's been so much. I mean, he, when he was on the campaign, he was also like stabbed. Uh, in uh, Belo Horizonte, I think. And so yes. Bolsonaro is kind of like the wily coyote of international affairs, well, constantly he's getting injured. Ongoing health problems. So there is no world leader um, who has been photographed more times with like a tube up his nose in the hospital. And giving the uh, thumbs up. Bolsonaro. Always giving the thumbs up. Um, but I mean, yeah, that that stabbing has been um, kind of lingered, caused lingering health problems for him. Yeah, no, that was a serious stabbing. I remember at the time, I think he almost died. I happened to be in Brazil. I think it was September 2019 or 2018. It must have been 2018. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a good thing. So has anything else been going on with the General Assembly or is that all, all there is to really update? Um, well, we can talk about, I mean, the the only speeches I think that weren't noteworthy um, were 
listening to Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, Jinping downplay the, cold, the new Cold War. Uh, but we can get into that uh, in a minute. The, the other interesting dramas have uh, involved some questions about representation. Um, Myanmar's junta government wanted to send its own representative, but uh, the, the UN representative of the previous government, the pre-coup, uh, government has refused to give up his seat, and there's no uh, real desire within the UN to recognize the the coup or recognize the junta as legitimate. Uh, so they've allowed him to sort of keep his seat. Um, they they kind of punted on the question of who Myanmar's legitimate representative is by deciding that um, the guy who's occupying the seat now, Kyamotun, I think is his name. I'm probably butchering that, um, but. He could stay. He he couldn't participate in any of the the week's sort of festivities, but he's still technically occupying that seat. Uh, the credentials committee, the UN credentials committee, is supposed to meet in November to try and figure this out once and for all. Uh, but it's it's a difficult issue because there's no basis on which to allow really Kyamotun to stay in that seat. There's no basis to recognize the hypothetical or cloud-based maybe uh, opposition government that has formed in, in opposition to the coup. On the other hand, uh, the junta, which actually does run the Control country at this things. point, yeah. uh, the, the UN has has no interest in the United States in particular has pushed this, uh, you know, doesn't want to recognize the junta as, as legitimate by giving it, uh, allowing it its choice of representation. Similarly, similar things have been going on with Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban appointed their own uh, uh, UN representative, uh, Suhail Shaheen, who was the spokesperson for their diplomatic office based in Doha and Qatar uh, for the last several years. They've named him as UN ambassador. They, they've asked uh, that the new interim, I guess, I'm still not clear about how interim this government is, uh, but that their new foreign minister be allowed to address the session. Um, that, that's been, that was pretty quickly shut down. Nobody wants to do that. Um, and again, there's sort of a, you know, there's a lack of interest in kind of giving the, the Taliban the, the, the stamp of, or the imprimatur of legitimacy. Uh, by giving them the Afghanistan seat at the UN, but there's no basis for yeah. That seems to be a to matter of else. time. Yeah, that that um, seems to be a matter. That, of time. Yeah, that will probably be worked out again. This has to go through the credentials committee. Um, I don't know when they're planning to to hash that out, but it, more so than Myanmar, I think this is uh, sort of a foregone conclusion that you will have to give the Taliban. Yeah. Uh, representation at some point, although I'm sure the U.S. and and European countries will will fight that because they view these sorts of things as leverage to be wielded against the the Taliban to kind of try to I don't know what keep it in line, force it to uh, sort of behave in a way that uh, respects human rights or Western interests or whatever it is, but they, they do view this sort of diplomatic stuff as one of the, the only levers that they have in that regard. Uh, so speaking of levers, uh, let's t uh, move to AUKUS, the uh, very controversial uh, amongst the French a uh, new pact, new new yes. agreement signed between the, the UK, Australia, and the United States that we talked a little bit about last week. So, Derek, maybe you could give a little update on how the French have responded 
to the loss of the uh, this large uh, defense contracting contract that they were reliant upon, and uh, more importantly, uh, besides the the French uh, reaction, is what this seems to indicate in terms of the North Atlantic or you know the Commonwealth in terms of the UK and Australia, their uh, geostrategic uh, posture in the region. Yeah, so uh, Emmanuel Macron and and Joe Biden had a phone call yesterday and seemed to start patching things up. The French government had uh, really gone, uh, you know, <laughs> funnily enough, as we're talking about uh, the U.S. and China and World War Three, they, they'd really gone to like DEFCON two over this uh, this contract that they lost and calling it a betrayal. And they had pulled their ambassador from the U.S. and from Australia, and uh, you know, taken a taken a number of steps to to really uh, express outrage over this deal. After the phone call, uh, Macron said he would be sending France's ambassador back to the United States. Uh, I don't know about the ambassador to Australia. I think that remains to be patched up, although uh, I'm sure some some compensation from Australia to the French contractor that lost the deal, uh, Naval Group, would probably go a long way towards solving that. Um, The the deal that Biden and Macron put together basically looks like it amounts to uh, buying Macron's goodwill or buying his friendship back. Uh, Biden made some vague promises about maybe upping U.S. logistical support for the French military mission in West Africa. So uh, it looks like they cut some kind of a deal uh, in that regard. Um, As far as the bigger strategic Wait, but Derek, before we move on very yeah, yeah. quickly, I just wanted Absolutely. to put this a little bit in historical context because France is interesting when you're thinking about the North Atlantic world because I think it's it's the country uh, much more so than the UK and Germany, kind of the big three of continental Europe. Uh, it's been the country most reticent to accept that it's a middle manager of empire. Um, so <laughs> yes. you have this sort of like de Gaullist reaction in the 50s, the late 50s and 60s. You know, right. uh, the, the the moving of the NATO headquarters um, from France elsewhere. Um, right, where they have, actually, I mean, they actually withdrew from NATO for a, for a time. Yeah, yeah so they withdrew from NATO. Well, it's like, if, if I recall correctly, it's like a complicated withdrawal. Like they still had right. some connection. It wasn't a full withdrawal, yeah. yeah. It wasn't a full withdrawal, but, but the French, more so than any other former imperial country, um, even though there is a, a French Guiana, right? That is officially part of France, and that's yes. in the uh, Western Hemisphere. Um, and there, there are th- territories in the South Pacific, too. They, yeah, they have and there are islands. territories in the South Pacific as well. So, But France has been the most reluctant as sort of a form of national honor to recognize the situation uh, that it that it is is in. You know, it is, it is a middle to weak power at this point that is nothing really in terms of geostrategic power without its fellow European countries. Um, But it's always interesting because, you know, the French, they don't have any American bases in France, right? Which is not not the case for the UK and Germany. You know, the the French are willing to take a little bit of a stand, uh, unlike any of the other North Atlantic powers. And this has been something that's been going on for 50 or 60 years, which is very embedded in sort of French culture and French martial culture. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think that'll go on for for decades to come. I don't think that's going, going... Going anywhere, but they refuse to accept what they are. As Marlo Stanfield on the wire said, you know, <laughs> they want it to be one way, but it's the other way. It's the other way. Uh, that's right. And no, they're constantly and that, I mean, France has figuring a, that has out. a peculiar kind of post-colonial relationship with its former 
dominions, I would say, as well, as opposed to the UK, which, um, you know, maintained influence, certainly after giving up its colonies. The French relationship with like West Africa, with Lebanon um, and and some other places is much more kind of overtly neo-colonial i think in, in many respects i mean uh you know you still have the french military kind of dominating west africa to some extent um their countries in west africa use the the west african franc which ties them uh economically and and french presidents routinely make these sort of grand pronouncements about like what the government of mali should do or the government of lebanon should do uh, that are just very kind of like very neo-colonial in their uh, in their nature my my the joke i always make is it's like being a french colony is like checking into the hotel california you can check out anytime i like but you can never really leave right um, it's like they want to be the united states they want to have the power of the united states but they just don't quite even though they do still exert significant influence um it's a, it's an interesting relationship we should do something on the u.s french relationship at some point that, yeah that would be a good idea so why don't we turn now to the geostrategic context and yeah. what actually matters here? So, I mean, this is a, it's a little incoherent in the North Atlantic sense because Biden has expressed a, a, a stronger preference for the European Union than for the UK. Um, I think we can talk a little bit about um, Boris Johnson getting his comeuppance at the White House this week. Um, but But, you know, he's kind of typically... Uh, suggested that the UK post-Brexit is not a priority for him and that the EU is a, a much bigger priority. And yet, you know, here's an action that, uh, you know, whatever you make of this very overblown, I think, French reaction is still kind of a, a slap in the face to, uh, to France and thereby to the EU uh, while bringing the UK into a, a, a new alliance that's clearly meant uh, to be part of the bigger picture in terms of the containment of China or the opposition to China, the, the Cold War, which I, and I mentioned earlier, we, we can, uh, you know, note some of the speeches or the, at least the speeches that Xi and, and Biden gave at the General Assembly, both of which tried very hard to downplay the idea that there's a new Cold War brewing, I think all evidence to the contrary. Uh, but now you have AUKUS, which sort of takes its place alongside the Quad, which uh, the leaders of the Quad are meeting at the White House on Friday. Um, it, you know, it's, it is sort of, uh, you know, it's part of what is, it's brought the UK into what is, I think, the defining um, overarching mission of US foreign policy at this point, which is, is countering China. And I think that's really interesting because it's almost a return to the turn of the 20th century English speaking peoples type, you know, racialist argument that the white English speaking peoples are going to need to come together and dominate the world, which is, a, you know, a trend going back to the late 19th century as the British kind of realized they weren't always going to be the center of the world scene. There were a lot of arguments um, basically arguing in favor of uniting with the United States, whether literally formally as one policy or coming together as an alliance or coming together as a partnership. And I think this is a reflection of these deep, longstanding, ultimately racialized trends of sort of ensuring that the the, the white race um, is able to dominate the world. Now, of course, it's not framed in that way today over the course of the 20th century, particularly after um, the defeat of Nazism, you couldn't use, you know, quite explicit racial language. Uh, and now it's a, a question of culture, you know, quote unquote culture and the connections among those. But it's interesting to see that even if, um, you know, 
the United States uh, it, under Biden it, it wants to be dr- uh, cl- drawn closer to the EU. There are these longstanding uh, 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 trends that really um, uh, are pushed in favor of US-UK alliance. So maybe you could talk a little bit uh, about the other trend, though. Uh, what happened with Bojo, Boris Johnson, native New Yorker, uh, this <laughs> well, week? Yeah. But I mean, I would add, I mean, to, to what you were saying the I, I somebody asked me this week if, um, you know, this means there's going to be like a quad plus that has the UK uh, involved in some way. And I mean, I think that's possible. Australia, of course, is already in the quad. Um, I, I think what the the Alcas deal may harbor or may kind of uh, preview is a is a strengthened uh, Five Eyes alliance. Five Eyes is the intelligence sharing English uh, nation, English nation uh, a group that in- includes Canada and New Zealand, along with Australia, the UK, and the US. So you have three of the uh, the five members of that group now, kind of kind of tightening their the level of their military cooperation. I, I think that may um, kind of preface uh, a move to bring the Five Eyes Alliance, you know, kind of extend that cooperation past just uh, intelligence sharing, which may get some pushback in in New Zealand or maybe even in Canada. I don't know. But um, I I think that may be where where things are heading. And just for people who might not know, the Quad refers to the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is the US, India, Japan, and Australia, uh, which you can see is like this East Asian oriented uh, security alliance. So uh, Bojo, yeah, uh, Bojo. <laughs> so Bojo had a meeting with Biden at the White House on Tuesday. And what I found uh, kind of funny about this is Bojo, you have to understand, um, has based a lot of, you know, when, when Donald Trump was was in office, uh, Bojo based a lot of his Brexit rhetoric and his pitch um, to the UK voter uh, or to the UK public uh, as sort of you know, if we get if we extricate ourselves from this stifling, um, you know, European Union, we can go out and cut our own free trade deals with whomever we want. And the big one, of course, would be a free trade deal with the United States, uh, which could go a long way toward uh, making up for the economic carnage that Brexit has left uh, in the UK. Um, The dream of that happening anytime soon seems to have died uh, with the end of the Trump presidency. Uh, And so what was funny about Bojo's meeting with with Biden on Tuesday is he came out uh, from it and and, and was, you know, talking and talking to the media on Wednesday, uh, was trumpeting the possibility, not even an agreement like on paper, but the possibility that the United States might lift its ban on imports of British lamb. (laughs) <laughs> which was imposed in 1989 during the the mad cow scare right uh, and and but it's just funny, 90s like kids the, will remember yeah right exactly the grandeur of of his, this dream of a, a comprehensive uh u.s trade agreement kind of now shifting down to like well maybe they'll let us export lamb to the united states again it's just uh has kind of sent me a little bit which uh uh, you know i think is funny there there he's still sort of holding on to the possibility like now there's there's talk of uh the uk coming in on the uh u.s mexico canada agreement the nafta you know the second uh yeah yeah which is kind of 
uh, I think raised some eyebrows in Mexico in particular. Uh, AMLO, the president of Mexico, uh, said, you know, if you if we're going to do that, if we're going to bring the UK in, all of Latin America should get a say in, in that, right. whether that happens. Um, so he's saying that's a non-starter, essentially. <laughs> yeah, essentially, I think that that would put uh, put an end to it. But um, yeah, it's just funny to see the sort of uh, decreased uh kind of hopes for a for a trade agreement with the United States kind of uh cut down in in their prime. And it's kind of interesting again to return to the English speaking people's idea. I think Bojo was, you know, relying on Trump partially, I mean Trump has no idea about that history, but partially based on those deep cultural currents to try to unite the UK and US in in this uh ever tighter alliance, ever ever tighter economic and security alliance. Well, and and I mean Trump just kind of viscerally hated the EU for reasons I don't because I think this cult, these cultural reasons, yeah, I don't think he understood, uh, yeah, but it's this I mean, sort of stuff. He, right. It was just sort of a basic thing with him. And, and uh, you know, he was he talked a really big game about, oh, yeah, you come out of the EU and we'll do a we'll do a big free trade deal with the UK and everything will be fine. Um, ignoring the fact that even if there was uh, the interest in doing that, even if Trump had gotten reelected, let's say, and there was an, an interest in uh, doing a big free trade deal, that that it would take years to negotiate the uh, the fine details of something like that. But of course, you know, Trump doesn't realize that. Uh, so on that happy note, um, everyone, uh, thank you, uh, for listening to this week's, uh, news portion of the episode. And we hope you enjoy our interview with Kate Kaiser. Thanks everybody. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It is I, Derek. I'm here with Danny as always. Hey, everybody. <laughs> We're very lucky and, and uh, pleased to be joined this week by Kate Kaiser. Kate is the policy director at Win Without War. Uh, she's previously been director of policy and advocacy at the Yemen Peace Project and uh, an advocacy officer for Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain. Uh, she's got a long, ex- uh, extensive, let's say, experience working on human rights uh, and U.S. foreign policy, especially around the Middle East. Uh, and we're going to get into a lot of that. We're gonna, Kate, we're going to get into your background uh, in a bit. I wanted to start uh, by talking about foreign policy in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, This is the most depressing time of the year, I think, uh, for people who are in the (laughs) restraint uh, community or the, you know, let's not go to war with everybody community. Uh, It is the uh, time when Congress debates the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, The NDAA at last I saw was upwards of $780 billion for next year and counting. Not enough. Uh, Not enough. It has reached... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've blown through kind of the most absurd. I'm old enough to remember when uh, people were like, wow, $700 billion. Do we really need that? And here we are uh, just a couple of years later approaching $800 billion. Uh, Kate, why don't you start everybody off with a, uh, a view of how just how dismal things are right now in terms of uh, what's happening in D.C.? Things are just fundamentally broken in D.C. I mean, I think that's been the story for a long time. Um, and it's broken in a bipartisan way, which is appropriate because our failed foreign policy has been bipartisan for a really long time. But there's just hasn't really been a real reckoning, I think, of how we got Trump, what the real impact of um, the pandemic has been, the like continued injustices against 
huge parts of the American public, um, and I'm talking about police brutality and state violence against unarmed Black people, um, and our detention of migrants, and the horrific things we're seeing at the border and de deportation of Haitian migrants is just really disappointing. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of necessarily high hopes for structural change under this administration, but I thought at least there would be a at least fuller revocation of all of the policies, including national security policies that Trump passed or implemented that so much of civil society, it didn't really matter if you were progressive or liberal, fought back against and was opposed to. And it really, I've been questioning like, okay, so who actually is making the decisions right now in the administration in particular. I mean, Congress has kind of always been Congress. And as a close colleague of mine likes to say, <laughs> Congress is where bold ideas go to die. Um, but but the Biden administration, I mean, it, it kind of looks in a lot of ways he's just implementing Trump's policies or, or changing things kind of at the margins and then claiming that it'll lead to systemic change. And it's just not happening. What do you think accounts for that strong continuity? Is it just that no one really cares about foreign policy? Is it just the uh, the case that you know the blob is a real thing and it has real influence, and there uh, therefore people share a bunch of assumptions about what the United States is and what it should do in the world? If you were to like, obviously it's a super complex process, but if you were to point to a few causal elements of why we see such strong continuities, what would they be? So I think for a long time, U.S. national security has really been based on security for a small subset of white elite, mostly men um, in the country. And the national security community or the blob has never really reckoned with that. And I think a lot of the policy decisions we're seeing in the bureaucracy um, or even just by political appointees or in Congress are rooted in the dehumanization and devaluing of human life if it's not white. I mean, we're seeing this with like the case with Gabby Petito, who, you know, there's like national attention on her murder, but there's women who are disappearing on um, indigenous uh, Native American reservations and no one's investigating that, right? And I think part of what you're seeing then reflected in foreign policy is rhetoric about support for human rights and human rights being at the center of U.S. foreign policy, finally. But nothing has really fundamentally changed. Um, the conception that this administration has of where its power comes from um, is really rooted in what military power do we have and our ability to dominate regions of the world. And the reality is that hasn't served the safety or security of really anyone except the blob in Washington and defense contractors at the end of the day. Um, like, and what what's happened, I think another part of this is that, uh, and this is like a really procedural, like structural inside the beltway thing, but Congress is really broken. And what I mean by that is Congress basically lobotomized itself in the nineties and it got rid of a bunch of institutions like the GAO um, 
that basically were like think tanks um, for Congress, and it provided the intellectual analysis that now Congress is relying on GAO and, and the Congressional Research Service for. Um, GAO is the Government Accountability Office. And those are tiny agencies who have like very limited resources and can't be responsive to Congress on all these issues. And so, you know, a lot of staff basically rely on lobbyist talking points or lobbyist information or think tank information that is often skewed um, and, and really just rooted in kind of the status quo Washington consensus conception of the United States role in the world um, and what our national security is really based on. And one reason for that is because the, of the lacking capacity in Congress and it's not just like that intellectual capacity, it's the fact that like staff are paid like poverty level salaries. And so you have this dynamic where to get a job on the Hill, you have to have worked on the Hill. So that's like one obstacle. But like to work on the Hill, you kind of have to like intern for free or be like a former official. And so you, the folks who are able to intern for free and move to DC without a job, right? Those are folks who typically have parental support financial support of some kind. Those are typically people who went to Ivy League universities, who come from a certain socioeconomic background. And so you have like this group think plus lack of capacity. And com that combined is a really good reason to just keep doing what you're doing because Democrats' main political goal has been to show that they can govern. And this brings me to my third point, is that Democrats are have been constantly basing their political strategy on responding to accusations on the right versus creating a strategy that's based on the policies and their vision of the world that they want to implement. And national security is an issue where this is much more acute, I think, um, than domestic policy in recent years uh, because there is a belief that talking about foreign policy is a weakness in politics. And it's something that uh, Democrats are weak on. And so we have to go on to the offensive. But in my view, just like domestic domestic priorities, we should be going on the offensive on foreign policy. The being anti-interventionist is actually very in line with where the public is. Being concerned about civilian harm is actually right where the public is across party lines, right? And so I think there's this overall, it's about this disconnect between Washington and the rest of the country. And you see that on the domestic side too, because the people in power fundamentally do not understand the experiences of the people who are most under threat and most vulnerable right now. They're a class oligarchy in a real way. And of course, since uh, Truman quote unquote lost China in October 1949, Democrats have always been freaked out uh, about being seen as weak on national security. Um, but it also does suggest, and I, I think that a lot of Democrats really do share fundamental assumptions, at least about the United States 
States's role in the world and that the United States should be the armed hegemon uh, and the, the prime economic power. And we'll get back to into a second, but I wanted to ask you a question about gender um, because it's not something that we've discussed on on the podcast before. But your uh, you know your reference to th- this being a foreign policy for for white men, I think, is true for most of American history. But what I think it's really interesting in the last. 25, 30 years, really since the end of the Cold War, you've seen the emergence of a cohort of, of female-identified policymakers, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, Hillary Clinton, Anne-Marie Slaughter, Samantha Power, the list goes on and on. M- M- Michelle Flournoy, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Um, so I wonder if you had any thoughts on sort of the um, how gender plays into policymaking, just because a lot of these uh, women seem to basically identify with the blob and, and, and blobist assumptions about the United States' world hegemony and the United States' world role. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. In my opinion, it's all about the fucked up career incentives in Washington, D.C. So to like enter this space, if you are not a white man, you typically need to adopt the positions of the establishment in order to move up the ranks, whether that's at a think tank, at the State Department. Um, it doesn't really matter. And that is where like the career incentives in national in the national security spaces are really fucked up because the higher you get, the more the incentive is not to be transparent, not to share information, to protect the institution. And I think while institutions are really important, we also have to be willing to challenge institutions and dismantle them if they are actually part of the problem and we need to start anew. Um, And it's, I think, you know, in recent years, there's been a lot, um, and we see this on um, racial equity and national security as well, where there's been a lot of tokenization of women, um, of people of color, in terms of as long as we have the numbers, we're di- we're diversifying and therefore we're applying a gender lens because there's a woman in the room or we're applying a racial lens because there's a non-white person in the room. And that is the same type of tokenism that uh, led us to war in Afghanistan or kept us at war in Afghanistan rather, right? It's this like version of white feminism that's really rooted in white saviorism And it just has a gender analysis layered on top of it. And I think that's where it's really important um, that to recognize that, like, that's where, like, progressives and the left, it's not a monolith, right? And that's what, like, women are not a monolith in our beliefs. And so part of what what the problem is, is that the the conception of the problem by, by the people of the power is in power is they think that oh, we just need to add more people who look like that, but it's not actually, like, once they come in, like, the ideas all stay the same. And what I've seen directly with friends who have gone in and out of government is a lot of them leave because they come from a different lived experience, they enter the government, and there's no allowance for creative thinking in terms of what the potential policy solution is, what the potential U.S. interest is. It's all about protecting the status quo. And you see that in a lot of like uh, moderate congressional offices as well. Right. And it's it's part of this problem that like, oh, you know, it's kind of the uh, the optics thing where they had 
with Brett Kavanaugh, they had like some woman testify on his behalf or some bullshit. And it, it, it's the same exact thing that so long as we have a woman, everything's okay. And the reality is, is like protecting white women, right, has been a tool used to oppress other people for centuries, particularly in this country. And so like, it's really frustrating to me personally when people are like, oh, it's only diversity that matters. It's not. We actually have to talk about what real equity looks like. Um, and that means giving people power. And that requires other people to give up power, which is why it's so challenging. One of the things that, that strikes me as we're having this conversation and is something that we've joked about a couple of times on this show, but we haven't really interrogated, uh, is the gerontocracy. Uh, and specifically as we're talking about the Democrats, right? I know you're, you're laughing, which I wish people could see because I don't normally make people laugh on this show. But um, the uh, I mean, if we're if we sort of chalk the what's happening in the Republican Party up to this like nativist backlash. And, and that's that's like a lost cause. Uh, if we focus on the Democratic Party and we, we ask questions about, you know, why isn't there more of a willingness to challenge the basis of the, the national security state or to challenge militarism or to challenge even on immigration to, to sort of take a stand and talk about human rights and talk about these people as, as human beings um, and, you know, ch champion or stand up for the rights of, of non-white men, basically, or non-whites. Um, I feel like a lot of this has to do with the fact that the leadership of the Democratic Party's average age is 75. And these people came up in a particular era when you talked about things in a particular way. Uh, you know, the, the Cold War framed everything if you were talking about national security. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was absolutely verboten to challenge uh, the military state because we're all going to, you know, the, the Soviets are going to kill us all uh, or communism is going to run rampant and our children are going to be warped or whatever. Um, it still is. Haven't you heard? Well, well, so, <laughs> so, I mean, my question, I guess, is do you have any hope uh, that the, the Democratic Party can age out of this? And I, I ask this because you've talked a lot about institutions and what it takes to come through the institutions as they exist now and the kind of views that you have to adopt to get through them, which are still framed fundamentally by these people who have a Cold War mindset in a lot of ways, uh, or let's say a 1950s, 1960s mindset. Um, do, do you have, I mean, what, what do you feel like the future holds in, in this respect? There's definitely a huge generational divide on foreign policy. I mean, I even see it in my generation. I'm a millennial, and I, I don't exactly know what generation is that for me. But I'm again um, the oldest person the on the program. Derek silent generation every week. Yeah, yeah Derek I'm, is silent, silent generation. generation. That's right. He's born oh in God, 1941. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Um, oh, you're gonna have to. Sorry. <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm Gen X. It's fine. It's fine. It's we can we can go well, ahead. My, I, I don't mind. I'm used is, to it by this point. My point is, is that I, you know, in Washington, I'm seen as this like radical who's, you know, proposing all these structural reforms that are big and lofty. And a lot of folks who are younger than me are like, oh, yeah, I, I see that. But like, we're over here. On the, on the left. And so, like, I think it's really interesting um, just to watch the normalization of just like radical ideas that are lib 
that are rooted in um, an abolition frame and liberation frame, right? And that that is a very understandable um, model to younger people. Um, whereas a lot of uh, members of Congress still don't know what intersectional means <laughs> um, or just like <laughs> how you even apply that concept, right? And and that's where I think like just the like structural analysis of the world is like fundamentally different. Um, and I think we're starting to see that in politics. And so that's where on your question about political parties, actually, you know, I'm putting my idealist hat on. Like, I think there's like the, oh, the most potential in terms of out organizing um, the establishment in the Democratic Party. Like I'm talking like the actual party apparatus um, and building from the bottom up um, to take over the party ultimately. And that's like their greatest fear. And I think it's, you know, I do think there's this generational divide, but I think like it, you know, it's that generational divide, the people in power are fighting to their last breath because it's really about a fear of losing power because all of most or most of um, democratic leaderships, you know, interests are very uh, similar um, to Republican members in that the Democratic Party takes just as much money from big corporations and Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry and defense contractors. There's not really a difference. And so when you pull back the layers, it's it's the moderates and the more senior members who are the weakest on these issues about whether or not or how they're being influenced, right? And what money they're accepting and whether or not they actually support democratizing um, the debates about who should be in power. And I think that that's a really big part of it. But that's to me, that's why it's so exciting that that conversation is happening because we're talking about democratizing power here. And really what progressive foreign policy folks want to do is democratize, po democratize power everywhere. And so I think like why that's exciting to me is like there's hope in my, in my brain that like there are people who get that who are younger than me and are going to have the energy to like follow in the footsteps of what we're building now. Um, and, you know, I just think we're, we're at a precipice in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think like the, the structural challenges we're seeing with the political parties are very much reflected in that as well. So let me uh, propose an idea and I'd love to hear your response because you're someone who has extensive experience in sort of grassroots thinking about foreign policy. So in the in the run-up to the 2020 election, there was a lot of talk about quote unquote theories of change, right? And I think one of the the gambles that the Bernie campaign made was that they would be able to activate voters who hadn't previously been activated, and this would be a path to victory. Um, and I think that the election, it'd be difficult to say, even with the machinations behind the scenes, that that just didn't that wasn't an accurate um, understanding of how politics was going to work in 2020, whether the campaign didn't do things well enough or whether there was uh, ultimate structural impediments. I'm agnostic about it. I don't think we know enough yet, but I think that theory of change was proven incorrect. Um, and which this has led me to sort of reconceive my 
own thoughts or at least reconceive how I uh, understand present American foreign policy. And I've been uh, arriving at this position that one of the things that characterizes our politics, broadly speaking, beyond foreign policy, but in domestic policy as well, is the idea that we have the institutions of a mass democracy, you know, mass-based political parties, for example. Um, But we don't actually have clear mechanisms of change because though we have the institutions of the political parties, which let's say developed over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, since World War II, since World War II began and even a little bit earlier with the New Deal, the United States has created an an administrative state, which is either shorn off from the public, you know, like the Fed, uh, the National Security Council, of which there is no democratic accountability. Uh, You have uh, increasing power in the literal executive um, himself, uh, at literally in the White House, even more so than the State Department or or even the Defense Department in some regards. Um, which indicates that mass protest-based movements aren't necessarily the engine of political change that they might have been in earlier moments in American history. Uh, I think you saw this with Iraq. Uh, I think you one could even say this you, it, with response to the protests against the murder of George Floyd, is that you haven't seen the types of masses changes, the massive changes that these sorts of protests one might have envisioned uh, might have engendered, partially, again, because we have this form of administrative uh, state. And, and as you're saying, even the parts of the state that are supposed to be democratic, like the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, are like underfunded and super tiny. So one, do you think that's an accurate understanding of politics as they stand in 2021? Uh, and two, uh, based on your answer to that, yes or no, what do you think the role of grassroots organizing is in making foreign policy change? Well, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about asking you to take a breath and all of that, Dan. Um <laughs> Okay, I want to make sure I'm understanding your proposition here. So basically what you're saying is that the bottom-up organizing of winning electoral politics didn't work. And part of that is because there's like this administrative state and all of these institutions that like keep it from happening. Is that? No, it's not as direct causal. It's more like where does power lie, you know, Mm -hmm. and power lies in the administrative state. That If one were to do a power mapping of the American state, where are decisions made and who is affecting those decisions? And it doesn't seem like grassroots mobilization uh, is that important an input into that decision-making calculus. Maybe that's wrong, but that's my read of uh, particularly anti-war movements. I mean, I think that's definitely, so like, first of all, I think the anti-war movement is in a fundamentally different place than the racial justice movement um, the, like the climate crisis movement, because those are movements who have organized for decades to build political power. Um, and the anti-war movement has not done that. Um, you had massive protests against the Iraq war, but like those massive protests were incredibly impressive and inspirational to other people around the world. But we, that did it doesn't mean you have political power. And so I think that's where um, I I agree in that, like the executive branch has basically taken on a role um, of interpreting things, creating bureaucracy, all of these things, because Congress hasn't done its job and stepped in and said, this is how it should be. This is what we're doing. Here's the oversight, all of this. And so, yes, the executive branch um, has stepped into the vacuum. And 
I'm not sure. Like the, I think for me, the challenge in your proposition is like the connection of that to the electoral politics. I think well, actually, I, I guess to make the causal claim clear, because I think that's what you're asking and it's fair. Yeah. I think part of the de-democratization of American society is linked to the rise of an administrative state over the course of decades. That the rise of this administrative state has led people to become less invested in politics, even though we talk about nothing but politics on social media. The actual in investment of you know putting your body out there, not in, literally in protest, but literally the forms of political organizing, is the partial result of the establishment of an administrative state. And this administrative state is most powerful in the areas of economic and military decision making. Just to make the causal claim clear. That's very helpful. Uh, so. Off the top of my head, <laughs> um, you know, I think where I differ is that it's not that I disagree with that. I would just say that I actually think the I actually think it's the corporate capture of our government that actually is the problem and has skewed everything and made people think that democratic participation doesn't work. And they're not wrong. Um, and right. That's the I think they're like, not wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah, that, that is the key problem. And I think that's contributed to the like increased reliance on an administrative state because Congress no longer wants to take hard votes that could get them not elected because the only incentive is to stay in office and fundraise. Right. And so like, I, I get you there, but we need, I think we need the economic analysis of how distorted our economy has become and how that has really influenced our politics. And I want to make clear, I'm not making the like, oh, white people are disenfranchised, therefore they're angry, and that's how we got here. It's much more that like we have set up an economy that literally works for a handful of people and no one else. It doesn't really matter what your race is at that point, right? Or even your gender. It's just how impacted are you is it, in terms of degree is the real question at that point. And so I think, you know, for me, I spent a lot of um, uh, my undergraduate at UCLA focusing on the ideologies behind um, violent groups that perpetrate terrorism and are inspired or basically use Islamic teachings to justify what they're doing. Classic and, millennial undergrad subject. <laughs> you know, um, I, uh, I learned all about talk beer and it was very interesting. Um, and that was when I was could still read and speak Arabic and dream in it, but not anymore. Sadly. <laughs> but like the, what I was trying to get to is that what the government has done, what the administrate has done, maybe is what you would argue, is basically created um, these threat perceptions um, to the public to justify things that enrich itself and reinforce its power and the power of corporations over the system. And basically what you have happen, right, is People become disenfranchised with their government. It doesn't serve them in whatever way. And they turn to third parties for influence and, and an explanation of why. That's how you get Donald Trump. That's how you get the rise and support for white supremacist groups um, and other nativist groups, because people are looking for an explanation and no political party is really giving an answer. And Trump was like, here's the answer. Even though I'm lying, it doesn't really matter. I think that's I, I, I agree with that 
I feel like the, the the explanation for the rise of Trump to some extent, as you say, is um, not that he was giving an answer that made any sense or was true in any in any way that uh, to the extent that people can evaluate something like that. It was that he was offering an answer at all uh, to people who are are trying to figure out what happened. Um, and I, I, I guess to bring us uh, back a little bit to the Biden administration and what you've observed of it for its uh, in its first, what has it been now, eight months, I guess, in office. Um, as we look at things like, uh, you know, an administration that makes statements about putting human rights at the center of American foreign policy and and gets hopes up to some extent that, you know, among some of us that like we're going to actually take this seriously after, you know, never taking it seriously before uh, and then turns around and approves weapon sales to the UAE or to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, and and does very little really to change the fundamental um, I, I would say, I, I mean, I, you, you've argued it in, in uh, writing kind of pro authoritarian uh, nature of American foreign policy. Um, how, what do you, you know, what, what has been your impression uh, so far about what's happening in the Biden administration? I'm, I'm very, not, not very impressed, obviously, but um, uh, what is, what's been your take? Oh boy. <laughs> I think what you said at the top is really, really true in terms of and I think I like tweeted this yesterday or something, but like Biden, even yesterday, he he gives really good speeches that are in a progressive frame that are saying the right things. Right. And then saying some stupid things. But like it's progress theoretically. And then you their actions, whether it's his decision making or his administrations, they either do they do the exact opposite or they like tinker with something and then they like make this big deal out of it. Like it's the best thing ever and it's going to change everything fundamentally. Um, and you see this with um, the decision not to sanction Mohammed bin Salman for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. They, you know, sanctioned um, a lot of Saudi nationals who took part in the assassination. And then they, their, their solution to holding Saudi Arabia accountable was oh, we're instituting this broader visa ban, sanctions reform. So, um, you know, uh, these types of activities uh, will, will be sanctionable offenses in the future. And so that'll deter behavior. But the reality is that, like, what? No, that, that's not holding someone accountable. That's like fixing a loophole in your sanction system that, like, you know, which I have qualms about in general, but we'll get into that. And I, you know, and I think that's where, I mean, I'm sorry not to jump in, but like the, the, the blacklistings that went, that, that actually went on when, when the United States sanctions an individual at the level of, uh, you know, Mohammed bin Salman's, uh, you know, Chamberlain or his, his intelligence advisor or somebody, some functionary in the Saudi government, these things amount to, 
we're going to freeze any assets that you have in the United States and you're not allowed to come here. Almost certainly none of them have any assets in the United States. And okay, they'll go to Europe. And so, I mean, if they go to a, take a vacation, they'll go someplace else. Like these are not actual yeah, wants to go to America that, anyway. that affects affect anybody in a real way. It's sort of an on paper uh, punishment, but but it doesn't uh, you know have the same import as if you actually uh, sanctioned somebody at the level of, of Mohammed bin Salman. Well, I think also the reality in Saudi Arabia is that Mohammed bin Salman spent a lot of time consolidating power um, over the last several years. And so now he basically controls the Saudi sovereign wealth fund. And so if you really want to hit them where it hurts, then you sanction that fund, which is invested in a ton of American companies. And that's a hard thing to do. And Biden doesn't want to do that. Right. And I think that's where, the, you know, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, the rubber really met the road, let alone the arms sales continuing, because it was clear that it was a really blatant first in, uh, instance of him just fundamentally not upholding a campaign promise. I mean, he went out of his way during the Democratic debates to call Saudi Arabia a pariah and claim that he was going to make them the pariah they are. And like, yeah, great. <laughs> like, <laughs> we've been waiting. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, it just hasn't happened. I think a big part of it is his personnel choices. Um, you know, to be fair, like, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who should not be in the Senate and friends of the pod. Big time. Ted, Ted Cruz, <laughs> big, big fan. <laughs> um, right. They're holding up uh, nominations, but basically their strategy, which was their strategy during the campaign was we're going to have a big tent, you know, folks from the right, folks from the left, and we're going to figure out what a bipartisan foreign policy looks like. And the reality is that, it's not, you know, you were bringing in progressives and kind of like advisory roles who don't really have a lot of power or people who have new ideas who are put in positions of power are then outmaneuvered by the bureaucracy. Um, and you see something like the person um, who was writing the national, the NPR, um, the nuclear posture review for the administration who used to be Jack Reed's um, Senate staffer. On nuclear weapons, she basically got pushed out of the administration. Um, and now, like a hawkish person, is writing the nuclear posture review. And so, you know, when Biden came in, I think I said this at the top, there wasn't like a purge ultimately of the people that Trump had put into place um, throughout the bureaucracy. And they, they, you know, he wasn't effective in a lot of ways, but on that like the administration was rather effective. And so, you know, we're seeing the same thing at GHS where you have like some of the top politicals who are in place being like, wait, what? And finding out about things. And it's because, you know, a lot of folks are still pushing these policies forward because they have like, you know, one reason is like they haven't been given the directive not to is a big part of it. Right. And so I just really see him falling short. And to be honest, I think like, as I was saying, we're really on a precipice here. And so the failure to waste these four years and potentially not make the really bold decisions and transformations that are needed to survive this century um, is really, really worrisome. 
So you're telling me a 78-year-old or maybe 79 at this point is in uh, the cutting edge of thinking? What a shock. But Kate, I was wondering, you mentioned something really interesting that you you were, um, well, uh, on one hand, you said it was because of capital, you know, that you can't attack the the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia because essentially it invests in too many American businesses. So the old Marxist, you know, it's capitalist driving, there's that, uh, which I absolutely agree with. And I was wondering if you could comment a bit on, you said uh, it has a lot to do with personnel. So you you referenced sort of the quote unquote deep state, the permanent bureaucracy. But what about the team behind Biden? I mean, I, I just say in in all seriousness, like when you're that old, you you can't you, your your mind just a lot of times begins to deteriorate slightly. And I'm not saying that he's you know totally um, not not there, but I'm sure it's more difficult to keep a lot of things in your head to, to be in control of the administrative state, which suggests, like under Reagan or under Woodrow Wilson, toward the end of his presidency, is that people at sort of the elite administrative rank or the elite appointment rank have a lot of power. So maybe you could talk a bit about Blinken and people surrounding him and what you think their view of the world is, because it's probably mostly them more than Biden who are uh, the driving force behind U.S. foreign policy at the moment. I think that's true to a certain extent, but there's there's uh, a big caveat <laughs> to what you just said in terms of uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, because that happened right. because the president wanted it to happen. So that, like singular you know, strategic choice is, I think, something that he really can do. Um, but I'm talking about like the management of empire, essentially. Like he could say, we're getting out of <laughs> Afghanistan. We're getting out, we're getting out, we're getting out, we're getting out. And that's something that you could do because that's like simple and over and over and over. Not simple in execution, but simple in choice, right? We're either in or we're out, we're out. Um, so I was thinking more at a level because I totally agree with you. That was a that was based Biden right there. So I think that, you know, his advisors are relatively young, Um whether at NSE or state or even at DOD, right? Like the the secretaries are relatively young comparatively to the past secretaries. They're only 65. <laughs> <laughs> but like you have Jake Sullivan, right? Who's like, I don't know, is he in his 40s? And like Tony yeah, is in 40s, 50s. I, I don't know the ages of people. Yeah, 44. Um, but, Sullivan's 44. But I think like the, you know, I think part of, What's happening is that, like, to to win the election, he took on a lot of progressive rhetoric and progressive positions. And I don't necessarily think that's a reflection necessarily of the long-held views of his staff or advisors. And so, you know, I think that while a lot of them promised change and we're going to do things differently, the president also made... a a key part of his stumping, we just have to turn the page and return to back to normal, right? And the reality is that normal was killing thousands of people every year. And so, like, I think what we're seeing, right, is there's, it, it seems to me that they're they're making policy based on this conception of the world that is really, like, rooted in the 90s almost, um, in that we live in a bipolar world, and maybe economically that's true, but I, I think that really underestimates the power of entities that aren't states, um, that are either groups or, or corporations, um, and their ability to actually influence world events. And so, you know, what, what has been really disappointing for me to watch is that 
a lot of our diplomacy, despite, you know, the president this week talking about we want to we don't want to wage endless war. We want to wage relentless diplomacy. Great. But like all of the diplomacy we're doing right now and like our entire conception of what an alliance is and who should be our alliance partners it's all based on the conception of what's best for the military and what will strengthen our military power. And I think so long as that drives the thinking, you're going to have inevitably militarized and securitized solutions to political problems that that should not even be on the table as, as an option. And, and another de- undemocratic element of the foreign policy making is that the military has an enormous say in what the United States does in terms of foreign policy, totally unconstitutional and totally anti-democratic. Well, it just they should be, you know, the tool of last resort. And what we have done is we basically funded and funded the institution in such a way that signaled you are the only tool. And so then every problem became something that needed a hammer. And so you have this situation where even you saw it in the NDA legislation um, this year, where you have basically, because Congress isn't doing its job in passing an annual State Department authorization, for example, right, dictating the policies of the department like it used to do back in the day. Um, You have all these amendments that are fundamentally about foreign policy issues and you have members asking DOD to fix it. And, you know, when I was in grad school, one of the most um, impactful things that happened was I took a lot of classes um, uh, with folks in the military and their number one thing was like, we have to stop asking the military to do things we're not capable of. Like, Like the people implementing these policies don't think that they will work because they are not the tool to do it. And so we should listen to them. AFRICOM over the last several years has repeatedly said, please take some of our budget and put it towards USAID and development because in Somalia, our airstrikes aren't doing anything. They're just holding the line and if nothing else, exacerbating harm. So, you know, I think that's where, again, it's this nexus of corporate power that exists in a lot of other policy areas, but because it's been shrouded in the complexity of national security and it's so important of our national defense, there's a lot of fear mongering about who gets to say what our policy should be, who gets to be at the table. And so long as we keep the military as the main person at the table, making the decisions and deferring to them, which Congress does all of the time, and Trump like made an art because he just let the generals make all the decisions, right? Um, in the theaters of combat, like it's not going to change. And that's the where handsome generals, the handsome generals, come on, the handsome generals, they're the best looking generals. Look at these guys; they're so handsome. I mean, but that's you see, like you, it. It was I, you know, when the Afghanistan withdrawal was happening, I was like doing tons of work, right, to like a be like, what the fuck is your plan? Because clearly you have none. But B what are we going to do instead in Afghanistan? We're withdrawing, but like, what's the strategy? And they only have a military strategy. It's an over the horizon strategy. There's even in this administration that is talking about putting diplomacy first, they do not create strategies necessarily that put diplomacy development and peace building in the lead. Um, well, Kate, I mean, we're, we're, 
getting up to a place where we we should probably wrap up, but um, I wanted to get you maybe to talk a little bit about your own story and in, in terms of where you came from and how you came to be doing the work that you're doing in the hopes that maybe, uh, and you can sort of, you know, talk about this as well. Uh, one of the questions that, that I get asked is, you know, people want to know how they can get involved in these issues and, and, you know, work for a, a better U S foreign policy. I feel like, unfortunately, uh, this podcast gives people a very nihilistic take on that question because we do talk a lot about uh, the 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 democratization of uh, the the foreign policy establishment, the the sort of insulating uh, decision making in the White House in in terms of the military. The you know we restrict the. Um, involvement in conflicts to an ever smaller group of soldiers and now even you know are moving to to a place where it's automated um so it's even more cut off from anybody you know any normal person or average uh person so could you maybe talk a little bit about your experience um you know working in this arena and and what people can do uh to participate in it there are a lot of ways that people can get involved. Um, I think the the primary way that's really basic is just to talk about these things um, with friends and like actually read the news and form opinions. Um, because I think our culture is that um, uh, regular folks don't have a right to make an opinion necessarily about foreign affairs or security issues, right? And and we and don't even let Congress make opinions about foreign affairs anymore, let alone like anybody outside. Well, and like if you, you know, in in movement spaces, foreign policy isn't something that naturally gets talked about. It gets talked about a lot in immigration spaces for sure. Um, but I think the broader progressive movement hasn't really adopted um, a true, not only anti-war, but internationalist um, view and made the links between domestic and foreign policy and the systems of oppression that we're all experiencing um, make those links. So it's not two separate things. And I think that's really the key. Um, and so that's where like regular folks, if even if you just read a book and then try to like talk about it with your friends, it can have an impact because you'll, your friend will see a story and then will at least have some informed opinion or reach out to you who does have a foreign opinion, right? Um, and like the education piece is a big part of this. But my background is that um, I grew up in a conservative household. I'm like the lefty person the black family. sheep of the family nice yeah um <laughs> you know my brother's there with me but uh uh you know i think i was very much raised to think of the united states as the indispensable nation uh that like we were exceptional that we had the right um to intervene uh wherever we saw fit and that i think the biggest myth that i believed is that we we're a force for good in the world and, you know, I was a little bit of a late bloomer uh, in that I really thought that until I went abroad and lived in Egypt um, and worked in Egypt before the pro-democracy uprisings in 2011. And, you know, I backpacked through the Levant and spent a lot of time in Syria um, and Lebanon. And it was very eye-opening to me just to see the, like, 
the entire experience just confirmed that like everything I had been taught was just like not true. And actually the U.S. was not a force for good. And we were actually backing a lot of authoritarians and doing so many terrible things. Right. And I, because I grew up in a very white environment, I just hadn't been exposed to a lot of the harms that we had done, whether now or historically. And so um, for me, it's been a lot of learning over the years, but um, because, you know, I don't come from necessarily like a well-off family. Um, I had to pay off some student loans before I could actually work in policy. So there is hope <laughs> if you mm. work in corporate America and you yeah. want to eventually work in policy, <laughs> you can make the pivot. Um, but honestly, it was about like being able to have a savings student account and then move to DC and not have a job. Like it's uh, it's hard. But, um, you know, I, I had always wanted to work on policy and try to influence policy, but I didn't exactly know. And I... Um, I did. I wasn't really familiar with the region, uh, the Middle East, at least, and North Africa until college. And but that's what I set out to do after working in tech for a little bit. And it. I also worked on a governor's race in the interim. Um, it was a crazy time, 2014. <laughs> and I was like, you know, a free intern for six months um, at the Project on Middle East Democracy, and then worked at. Americans for Democracy and Human Rights in Bahrain, which is a mouthful. Um, and it was, you know, part of it was that I was in a position where I was economically able to like work the system, right? And work three jobs for six months to make it work and 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 do that. And I think um, that's one of the really harsh realities um, about this space is that there's not a lot of spaces to do these work and that's why like ultimately we need like five women without wars um and like more progressive think tanks right where there can actually be homes for folks um and and that's where again it's like we need to up interrupt the career incentives in dc and give people who think differently a home and there's been you know certain um attempts at this like the quincy institute um, but we need more of that. And there's so little of it right now. I think that's a, that's a huge problem. I know, sorry, that's not providing hope, um, <laughs> but, but I think no, that but the other it is, thing, it does, you know what it does, it, 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 it's gratifying because, um, you know, as I, I said, you know, people ask me like, how do I get, you know, how do I do this? How do I get into foreign policy? Like, what can I do? And my answer is always, um, and I, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but I, I say, like I wouldn't be writing a newsletter and doing this podcast if I had figured out a way to get get into the foreign policy community. Like I, I wouldn't have wound up doing this. Not I'm not saying that I would rather be doing that than what I'm doing. That's not true. But it is the case that I kind of fell into this uh, for lack of being able to find a home as uh, you know and get a steady job. Um, and so I, my my advice always winds up being like. Well, if you can afford to do an internship, do an internship. And I, I can't, I don't know what else to say, but it's gratifying to me to hear you say that because I'm, I'm at least not steering people in the wrong direction. Yeah. And I mean, I think the, the, the other piece of advice I would give is that like becoming an expert on an issue is not actually that hard for what it's worth. Like the reason people in DC are experts on issues is that they are basically reading news about that issue every single day, tracking what the US government is doing, analyzing their statements, reading between the lines. And you can do that as a private citizen and like build a brand and like tweet. And like, to be honest, that was one of the main pieces of advice <laughs> I got in my first job was you need to create a Twitter because there is this weird 
foreign policy, national security space on Twitter that actually can help make or break like careers and whether or not you become a known entity in Washington. And, you know, I was like the tech worker who hated tech. So like I never had social media <laughs> unless I had to. And, but I, I created one and I got multiple interviews from it. I ended up meeting my future boss at YPP because I was tweeting uh, SFRC hearing on Yemen and like calling out Chairman Corker at the time for being so ridiculous, right? Um, so, you know, I think there's like these alternative ways to get into this space that, um, important to think about. But also, if if you want to be in the movement, if you want to be an activist, working for one cause and then switching to a new cause happens all the time. And a lot of this is understanding like how the federal government works, the different levers that you can pull, um, who has influence over what. And if you know those things, you actually have so much power because you can connect the dots between seemingly disparate issues and create a picture of what's going on that allows you to bring people onto your side when you then offer the solution to that problem. Not to give away like my secret sauce, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's something Danny's talked about is what would happen if, uh, and um, I, I guess I burst the bubble and, and uh, uh, I, I've, I've revealed that he's had to leave, but he, he, he'll be back next week, folks. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, but he's—I mean—he's written about this. What what's going to happen, or what would happen if, uh, uh, by you know, hook or by crook, by some miraculous event, we got a leftist president tomorrow? Uh, the big problem—one of the big problems—would be a lack of people who share that ideology, who understand how the system works, and understand the relationships between Congress and the agencies, and have that that knowledge. So uh, I think that's a really powerful point, actually, to 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 talk about. Well, and that's where like you can go, you know, and work on the inside, maybe at a lower level position, get that credibility and then eventually switch. And that's so common in D.C. I think, you know, in the private sector, you shouldn't be switching jobs, don't want your resume to be jumpy. Right. But in D.C., right. it's like if your resume isn't jumpy, what are you developing? Right. Like it's always about the next stepping stone. And so that's where it's almost just because of time spent like in the space that you start to recognize these trends and put it all together. Um, and I always like to tell a story that like, I was not a Yemen expert when I first joined the Yemen peace project. Um, but like I did have experience in the Levant and in Egypt and U S policy towards those countries. And there are so many parallels to what the U S has done and did in Yemen and there's also so many parallels to what's happening in other regions, right? And so I think um, one of the best things people can do is really focus on identifying the trends in U.S. foreign policy that are identifiable, because that's ultimately like the stagnant thinking that's like driving a lot of the policy making. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, one I, again, I, I refer, you know, go back to. Uh, one of the things that I get asked about, which is, you know, I, I want to work, I want to go work in the State Department, or I want to go work for a congressman, but I don't know if I can, like, in, in good conscience, do that. And my answer is always, like, you know, you're not going to change the system from the inside. Like, if that's your your attitude, that's probably not, you know, as as the 
junior whatever in a department. You're not going to like fundamentally change the system. But if you can, you know, as long as it's not like don't go work for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or like I'm not saying go work for the Heritage Foundation or something. But you can switch sides. You can switch sides. You can switch sides. But if you can't go back, though, (laughs) if you're not going to be able to look at yourself in the mirror, like don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Um, But but as long as you can live with yourself, getting in there and and working and learning how how things work is itself a, a way to, you know, equip yourself to to be part of the, the solution later on or to be, you know, uh, be active later on. Well, and like, I think the caveat, I agree with what you just said, with the caveat that like, actually, in Congress and certain like certain roles in the executive branch, it's the junior staff that have so much power. <laughs> um, right. So yeah, you have yeah. in, in Congress, right, like the people who are, you know, determining member of Congress's foreign policy agendas, they're often like 22, 23, just out of college. Right. And so it's like, like I go and talk to them on a regular basis. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So when were you born? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and you know, it's not to say that's a bad thing, but like the reality is I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize that. Another example I've been given is like, um, you know, one of the most powerful positions in the executive branch is actually being the junior speechwriter because you write all of the first drafts. Basically, the speeches are where all the policy decisions get made. And that first draft is what the policy decisions are based off of. And so it's like you kind of it's it's such an interesting dynamic. And you're like, wait, what? Also, why aren't policies being made in a different way? Right? Yeah, like, not it speaks to the dysfunction. Little... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, there's hope if you take a job that I think the other part of this is that a lot of junior roles in D.C. And this is, you know, another place where the inequitability of Washington is just so prominent. Um, But like a lot of these jobs, you have to work 16, 18 hour days, right? Like you're just on all of the time. And so I think that the key thing to remember breaking into this space is that your first job is never going to be your last job. And can you do something that's unsustainable for a little while that'll get you somewhere else that is more sustainable? Um, right. But then there are people, you know, who just stay and do that work all the time. It's like Bernie Sanders, perfect example. How does that man do everything that he does? He's so amazing. <laughs> and like he takes his strolls around the um, the Capitol, or at least he used to. Um, and right. And like they're just going 24 seven. And yeah. that is the life of a policymaker. Yeah. I mean, that's that's another good caveat though i mean a lot of these junior staffer jobs aren't much better than an internship i mean in terms of being able to survive in washington dc like i know on the oh. salary that these people get paid you you still oh, yeah. almost need to have uh, the the financial support network let's say behind you to allow you to do that but um so i i think okay so you know take an internship never stop posting and, I think the, you know, the other take, thing is you you got to be got, take the jobs. The final thing I'll say is you got to be willing to be awkward and network because like, especially in COVID, it feels really weird to network and ask people for like coffee. Um, but like, that is how you get a job. I 
none of the jobs I've gotten in Washington I've applied for. There you and go. And like I'm See? not alone. And none of the jobs I've applied for <laughs> I've gotten. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but like networking is really your key if you're if you're sitting at home right now and you're just like sending resumes and cover letters willy nilly just everywhere you can possibly do you're wasting your time. It is a much better strategy to build a network and then be constantly checking in with them, reminding them, right? Asking them who they know and you can snowball it into opportunities. And I think that's where like the night, the, you know, a silver lining of COVID in these times is that people are willing now to do digital coffees where before you actually had to be in DC to get the coffee, right? And so there's like, the the pandemic in that way has kind of democratized access a little bit at least that's i i think that's that's a good place to to say and and uh, to say to people that like everybody had to do that so they understand like the the people who They're are really in nice position right <laughs> if you ask them you know you want to get a cup of coffee they they know how the system works because they went through it so uh, they're generally accommodating in that regard i will say it's surprising how nice people are about it. I think because we all had to go through the aw- awful, awkward, painfulness of right, being like, exactly. hi, we have to make soul talk. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so I think that's a good place to stop. And, you know, maybe a little bit of an un- un-American prestige, like uh, optimistic note for people who uh, want to get involved. Um, you know, Kate, Kate has uh, given you the roadmap to do so. Uh, Kate, thank you again so much for being on the program, and uh, we'll definitely do it again. Thanks for having me.